Hello listeners, and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. As is now tradition, in the first part of the year, we speak to Tobias Federico, owner and managing director of Berlin-based anal- analysis firm and consultancy Energy Brainpool. Tobias has decades of experience covering energy wholesale markets, and his insights and analysis are always worth listening to. So a warm welcome to you, Tobias. Thank you, Richard. How's life in Berlin? Well, actually, today we have a really sunny day. A new year was uh, really warm and wet, mm-hmm. uh, which was good also for the electricity prices. And New Year uh, and on Christmas, we had uh, actually some snowflakes, which was really nice. Ah, perfect. And, and how about Omicron? Has that hit in a big way yet? Uh, well, not yet. Um, I think we are not measuring correctly right now, <laughs> so we don't really know how much Omicron is there, but we do expect quite a big hit in the next weeks. In, in this week's pod, I, I plan to discuss the, the current energy crisis, uh, as it's been dubbed, as, as well as the latest developments in Germany. But let's start off by briefly talking about these unprecedented high prices. Tobias, is it all about gas? Well, not really. I think gas is the the main price driver, absolutely, starting from uh, the storage levels, which have been quite low in summertime, plus the uh, political parameters around gas, especially Nord Stream 2, um, in combination, of course, with the gas deliveries over, over the gas pipelines. But we also had an issue regarding the CO2 emission prices because they also jumped quite a lot, um, especially after uh, the UN COP meeting in Glasgow. So it's not all about gas, but um, I think gas was one of the initiators, especially here in Europe. Let's talk about the other factors as well. In the past, you've been very vocal about the, the potential for a supply crunch in the winter of 2022. Is that still your view here, Tobias? Well, actually, <laughs> I was thinking about that, especially when you do some some price forecast and scenario building. And what we have expected is a potential capacity crunch due to missing production capacities. What we have not expected is that uh, we are missing out of fuel. This was not part of our scenarios and our scenario thinking. Mm. Still, we do have a situation. We might postpone it for the next winter. It depends a little bit now how the winter is uh, going to continue, especially temperature-wise. Uh, so the weather plays a very important role. But um, still, we have both, I think. We, we have the issue of missing fuel, and we are having the issue of a missing capacity within the next years. So has the lack of fuels, the, you know, the extremely high prices both of gas and coal has that then postponed the crunch are you saying or has it made it even worse well (laughs) postponed not really (laughs) Um, but i think it has has made it really worse in the sense that um, there's one additional factor we have not been thinking about it's it's not really that of course with fossil fuel we have been thinking well it's always there and it always will be there we never have expected in our thoughts that there will be a reduction in the fuel supply in one way or the other due to several reasons. Could you go into those reasons, Tobias? One, of course, is uh, there is, especially when you look into gas and Russian gas delivery, this um, the political connection. Mm. I don't want to speak about geopolitics in, in specific. That's, that's a phrase or word which has to be used very carefully. But um, I think the potential combination of gas delivery to push political decisions 
seems to be quite obvious here in Germany right now, and uh, especially with the connection to Nord Stream 2. But when you also look into the long-term perspective, we want to phase out of uh, coal. We are phasing out of nuclear energy in Germany. We want to phase out also of gas maybe one day to switch from natural gas to hydrogen. So how, how is your thinking when you are one of the biggest gas producers in the world and deliver 40% of, of the gas to, to Europe? What's your long-term perspective on that, especially when you have invested billions into pipelines? So I think we are quite clear about our goal in the end where we want to reach our gas power plant production. But um, we are not quite clear about uh, how do the, the, the partners, when you do businesses, feel about it. Uh, so the path is not really clear. The goal is clear, but the path not. And maybe this reaction, especially from, from Russia's side, is something which came a bit of a surprise of the severeness of the, of the reaction. Mm. You know, I think we'll talk a little bit about Nord Stream 2 later, but, but I, you know, it's very clear that gas is be, being used as a political weapon on, on both sides of the debate. But if we can go on to the energy crisis, Tobias, and talk a little bit about the consequences. I mean, we've seen example, in the UK, 27 energy retailers going out of business. We've seen other suppliers in France and Belgium also struggling, Spain. What, what's the situation in Germany? Well, I think the same, but I think it's only the tip of the iceberg, honestly, because we, we have we had a few retailers who, who bailed out of business, at least. They, they did not claim bankruptcy. What they said is that they are stopping the delivery to the customers, which is a weird situation for the customers itself and also for the company. The, the biggest reason, I think, for this is um, that mostly the procurement side on the, on, on the especially very competitive, on the price competitive side retailers was that their spot market procurement was, from the percentage wise, much higher than standard utilities or standard suppliers. So we had a few of them bailing out uh, at the end of last year. Now some of them are also stopping deliveries to the customer. But there, there is the next step. The next step is for conventional utilities or, let's say, for, this, for the standard suppliers. When they continue with their classical procurement strategies at current price levels, there will be also an increase of electricity prices for their old customers within this year or next year. With the consequence that this increase, assuming that we will have the, the same price levels we are seeing right now, um, at least for the rest of the year, will be quite use, huge for the customer. So it's not only that the utilities um, um, are facing problems, also that the end customers um, are facing problems. So, And um, what we've seen so far have been just numbers, but we haven't seen the results of the numbers in the cash flows of the companies. And that's something we are going to see this year. And this might cause... Quite a lot of problems. That why, that's why I think what we saw is just the tip of the iceberg. Interesting. So you expect a, a spate of more bankruptcies in the months to come? Absolutely, yeah. But not only from the utility side, also from the end customer side. You know, are these companies going under due to, a, you know, due to poor hedging strategies or inadequate hedging? Or is it more complex than that? Being a consulting on, on the hedging side and risk management side and also on the procurement side, I have, I have to think about what I'm going to answer. The, the thing is, when you develop a hedging strategy, you should develop the hedging strategy for both market price developments, for price increases and price decreases. And uh, the bad hedging strategies we, we saw, at least in the last 20 years, have been due to the fact that 
the customers have been focusing on one side, either increasing pricing or decreasing pricing. I honestly must say that the current market situation is completely new to the hedging approach. And why is that? We have very high prices with a huge price volatility in absolute numbers. So we have seen price changes of 17 to 50 euro per megawatt hour in the yearly base contract. And these have been the price levels we've seen for the whole year, not in a daily change. So we have to think about whether the um, hedging strategies we, we have been used so far or um, also the um, security levels or the margin accounts uh, we have been working so far, the limits with other com uh, counterparties are still adapt for the current market situation when the market situation continues much longer. And that's really interesting. So we have to rethink a bit the hedging strategies in total. But of course, some of the players had bad hedging strategies, speaking about um, either buying all at one time and not buying it in tranches or having a high amount of spot delivery instead of the future market procurement. It's a very interesting picture. And I think, you know, if I stick with a market design debate, do you also think I see in some countries there is discussions about opening up or or maybe reviewing the way the system or the market operates in terms of the marginal price setting? Because when you have so much renewables, you know, due to come in over the next decade, is this really the correct way of operating the market? What's, what's your view here, Tobias? Are we going to see more discussion, maybe more changes? Well, we are going to definitely to see more discussions about it. And um, it's always a thought or a, I think, quite good criticism about the market design of the marginal pricing that the last producing power plant will set the market price. And the second assumption is that the last setting price are the short-run marginal costs of that specific power plant. So that all the other power plants are earning quite a good income, but the last one does not. The question is, um, just from the market design, is the market from its function really designed in a way that it refinances not only the short-run marginal costs, but also the capital costs of that power plant? And assuming there will be only one power plant which is price setting and it's always the same power plant of course this one will bail out because and they are not refinancing their investment um, so it will stop producing and then we will have the next one next one and next one but in reality what we are seeing is that it's always a changing type of power plants which is price setting and the second reality we are seeing is that usually at a certain point when we have not so much overcapacity left in a certain production hour, we are leaving the idea of perfect competition in the end. And um, so we are moving away from the short-term marginal cost and we are seeing scarcity prices. The discussion for the energy-only market is whether these scarcity prices are enough to refinance a power plant, firstly. And secondly, are we going to find investors who are willing to invest in a very risky strategy into peakers, so peak power plants, which are covering the last megawatt hours and maybe earn quite a lot? But this strongly depends on the weather due to the increase of fluctuating renewable energy. So I think it's worth discussing capacity mechanisms, but it shouldn't be the first step we are doing because we have not opened the market design fully for the energy only market to 
prove its worthness of refinancing power plants. Because from the political side, when we saw price spikes, they have been either cut down or the market design on the energy only market has changed a little bit. I just want to say one more thing about it. The current high prices don't, uh, or the reason for the current high prices are not capacity or missing production capacities right now. It's mostly due to fuel prices. So we should not compare one, one part of the market design to, to the other. The difference is that currently power plant producers are earning quite good, but not that much as if we would have scarcity. There's a danger here. We shouldn't be comparing apples and pears, you mean? Right. Yeah. Right now. So we, we shouldn't take the current market situation and say, see, we have high prices due to the wrong market design. And now we have to speak about capacity markets. We are having high prices right now due to high fuel prices and not due to the problem with the market design. But I'm quite open to the discussion, uh, to start a discussion looking into a rethinking of the market design. Not that that's really necessary, but we have to think about it. So what would be the alternatives that could be on the table? Would it be some kind of contracts for difference? Well, see if these contracts for differences could be in discussion. Um, the question is when, when we also see what's, what's, what's happening on, on the long-term perspective when we want to, to become net zero in our CO2 emissions. In the end, we do need a technology which gives us the uh, security that the capacity, the production capacity is there in the case we, we need it when we have a cold winter situation and little wind. So when renewables, especially fluctuating renewables, are not producing. Right now, it seems to be that this technology um, could be green hydrogen, produce, uh, electricity out of green hydrogen produced by by gas technology power plants, so CCGTs, for example. The, the, the thing is, what we really need is something where we have the security of the capacity in the case we need it. And around that, we should design a type of capacity mechanism. I think the biggest challenge is, irregardless what type of, either we speak about energy-only market, we speak about a CFD, or we speak about capacity payments in, in, in complete different ways, that we will not have an overfinancing, meaning that um, it seems to be like a subsidy system for certain technologies or um, those players who have the, the biggest lobby group and they are able to say how the market design will be to have the highest profit for, for them. So overfinancing is something we should avoid in this discussion. It is a political minefield there. You've got uh, lobby groups all over, people seeking those rents, people wanting those kind of subsidies, but you need to find exactly the right mechanism or the right uh, market that is suitable for, for those conditions. But yet at the same time, Tobias, do you think that once we get the supplies coming in of, of gas into Europe, uh, whether it's through Nord Stream 2 or wherever, through Ukraine or uh, through LNG, that this discussion will ease, that, that the concerns will abate um, because that's not so critical anymore? No, no. I think the discussion will continue, especially because um, the, the political ambitions to become net zero much earlier than expected. So the question is, um, how do electricity prices look like um, when we do have, let's say, 100% renewable or 60% renewable based on fluctuating renewables and the rest 20% based on a hydrogen type of production? So uh, when we are having marginal pricing, what's the price of hydrogen? 
is the hydrogen produced uh, by rene fluctuating renewables when they do have negative prices? So what's the cost of hydrogen? So I think the discussion around that will become very interesting, um, especially when we look into what comes after 2035, 2040, 2047, depends on the year where we want to become net zero. Uh, especially because we are already in the 20s when you are looking for a refinancing period or at least a technolo technological period of your production technology of 20 to 30 years. We have to think about the year 2060 right now, not 2050 anymore, which in my mindset was not, not, not the end of everything, but it, at least it was the end of our scenarios. You know, I think when we're talking about these changes and implementing a new type of market design, I mean, it's not really going to happen uh, for another 10 years. Would you agree? No, no. But it's um, even the next 10 years or uh, when we are speaking about the 30s and deciding about market designs right now, uh, which is going to happen then in the 30s, it affects your investment decision today. Of course, of course. Moving on to a different topic, um, uh, Tobias. You know, Germany has a new government. What, what's your verdict so far? What's your view here? Well, the, the government is quite ambitious, which uh, or what, I, what has been expected, looking into uh, the, the energy role. Why, uh, what is interesting that right now it seems to be that we have three or four ministries thinking about climate and, of course, uh, combined with climate energy. And um, although I have expected that within this government, we will have a clear focus on, on climate and fighting climate change, it's not really clear wh where the competences are right now with, within the German government structures. We, we have to see how it's, how it's going to develop. But on the other hand, they are also facing the challenges of real politics. So when you're in opposition and you have great ideas, you, you can talk about it. But when you are then in the reality and governing a country, then it becomes a little bit more complicated. But I think the path is clear somehow. We must increase investment into renewables, especially fluctuating renewables. So I, I think in this way, um, the, the government has the right ideas. I hope they are using the right instruments to implement that. But so, so far, I think their goals are quite ambitious. These ambitious plans, how are they going to be uh, financed? I mean, is it all through through subsidies, direct subsidies, or what's the mechanism that the government has chosen? Well, and that's the good thing that we have a coalition of three, and one is the, the, the party of the liberals, which usually are against subsidies in general. Of course, I think um, subsidies will be replaced by certain type of incentives. There, there was one little finance trick um, where... Uh, the current government used, I think it was 60 billions out of the Corona um, debt package from the previous government, which has not been used um, for fighting the financial consequences of Corona. But um, the, the current finance minister took these 60 billions and uh, claimed them to be invested into renewable projects or projects fighting climate change. So how they are, how are they are dealing with this money, it's not really clear right now. But uh, I think it will be uh, not direct subsidies per produced megawatt hour or something like that. It will be rather incentives for technological um, innovation and supporting this financially, at least how they're using the 60 billion euros. On, on the other hand, I think the market price development, especially for fluctuating renewables on the electricity market side, supports quite a lot investments um, here. So that's why we 
might not need any more from the calculation side, but even from the political level side, the EEG fee, so the fixed fee tariff, um, because I think current price levels are incentive enough for fluctuating renewable to be refinanced, at least from the wind onshore and wind offshore. Do you think this kind of support for for fluctuating renewables, could it make PPAs less attractive, for example, in Germany? Because, I mean, PPAs are booming in other parts of Europe, but could the plans for, for, for green growth in Germany threaten that, that growth? No, 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 not, not threaten. I think PPAs are seen as a quite good instrument to replace, uh, to replace the fixed fee tariff. Of course, PPAs are, are connected with, with certain risks, um, which are there, especially because you right now have uh, the, the financial solvency of, of at least two counterparties, which are there, either the producer and on the other hand, the PPA taker. So that's new. Um, but on the other hand, I think PPAs might be booming, but handling those risks is a little bit different than a, from a, a governmental guaranteed uh, fixed tariff. Uh, absolutely. And at the same time, you know, you see very high wholesale prices, which, you know, if you could perhaps persuade a bank that you don't need a PPA, just look at the wholesale prices, then maybe that's also another way uh, around it or, or a way to develop these these types of uh, facilities. Mm, not really, because mm. <laughs> banks are really risk averse, uh, which is good um, because they have their financial investments for 10, 15 years. And this price bubble, which lasts only for just a little and might last for a year or two years is definitely not enough for a bank to give a loan on on that so it's too short absolutely and and also if you're building on the base of this you know the the bubble as you say may have may have burst by the time it's all up and running finally tobias you know nord stream 2 has th- has this been a bit of an embarrassment for the german government uh, do you think <laughs> well not an embarrassment but um, as, as as you can see here it's i think my, my personal opinion is that uh, dealing with nord stream 2 and the political consequences also geopolitical consequences is a very high game and playing this game is not so easy and i think uh, the german government either the government before and the current one it's not so used in playing these geopolitical games because geopolitical games have been played outside of Europe, even outside of Germany. And um, now in being the, the, the center of this, it's, it's, it's really complicated. So embarrassing not, it was uh, a time delay and we do have complete different opinions about Nord Stream 2. First, of course, we have the, the, the direct um, consequences of direct gas delivery from Russia to Germany and Germany becoming the gas hub of Europe. There starts the first misunderstanding because most of the the, the parts of the population think that Nord Stream 2 is gas delivery just for Germany, which is not true because it's it's a gas delivery for all over Europe because Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 together, they easily can supply at 100% Germany, which is not wanted and not really needed. So Germany will become a gas. The second consequences are, of course, that um, what's the role of Russia or let's say the new Russia within the world landscape. It seems to be that Putin has now a complete different view of what has happened, especially when the Soviet Union did break down and this scattering of smaller states around Russia um, is something which 
obviously in in this new post-Soviet thinking of Putin disturbs quite a lot, especially having a buffer zone between Moscow and Europe. For whatever reason, he thinks he needs that. I think in the long-term history of Russia, this was always an issue uh, when you look back to 300 years, um, having a bigger buffer zone between Moscow and Europe, um, and or at least saying between NATO players and, and Moscow is necessary to have. So that combination came into the whole discussion regarding Nord Stream 2, and that's really high politics, and it's it's difficult. And also then having a individual role uh, looking into uh, the different political parties with having a friendship or not with Russia. When you look into Nord Stream 1, and uh, which has been initiated by Gerhard Schröder from the SPD, and SPD now also... <laughs> Uh, is having uh, the, the the chancellor right now in Germany, so it's um, it's a heritage they have to struggle a little bit with. So it's uh, let's say it's complicated as <laughs> as to speak in a relationship. Absolutely, not so much an embarrassment maybe, but they've been they've been thrust into kind of this very high uh, focus and high octane, you know, but also very tricky diplomatic kind of balance here, haven't they? I think absolutely. Absolutely. So playing this game and uh, on a diplomatic floor with economic interests and combining that, it's very thin ice, as we say in Germany. Tobias, thank you very much for, for you know, joining the Montel Weekly Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you on board. It's always a pleasure for me. Thank you, Richard. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions questions or you know let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show you can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com lastly remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on montel news you can subscribe on apple podcasts and spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from thank you and goodbye